Several weeks ago, we asked the question, can, can you have life, liberty, and happiness, can you have that apart from God? And we looked at the descendants of Cain, and we looked how seemingly things were going very well. Things were looking very promising for them. They were, they were flourishing. They were getting married. They were having children. They were building cities. They were fine-tuning the, the art of raising food and working with metal and even excelling in the arts. They were doing all kinds of things that God had designed human beings to do, and they were enjoying the same general blessings that are common to members of the human race. And yet, true life, true liberty, and true happiness, those were elusive. The effects of sin were clearly seen. As we see in chapters 4 and chapter 5, life could not escape the constant reminder of the curse that comes from rebellion against God. They were under this curse of their own sin. New lives begin, but inevitably death follows. So and so was born. They lived, but they died. Wash, rinse, repeat. You see that time and time again in the genealogies of Cain and his younger brother, Seth. This is the new normal. This is the way things are. This is the way things are going to be. Human beings will continue to reproduce. They'll continue to survive. They'll continue to try their very best to make the best out of this flawed existence that they find themselves in, sometimes agonizing existence, right? Suffering is very present in our world, but it'll just go on and on and on, right? Well, if you've read ahead, or if you've gone to Sunday school, you know there's more to the story. You know that there's a catastrophic event of epic proportions that is coming, that is going to rock the face of the planet. And not a single living human being will remain untouched. But how does humanity get there? What is it that brings us to that that moment, that boiling point inside of God where God finally says, enough is enough. We're done here. Did, did God's patience just run out? Or did he change his mind and decide, you know, the, the punishment that I've given humanity, I, I, I need to rethink that. I don't think that was enough. Is that what was going on? Or did humanity actually figure out a way to work around this cursed existence that they found themselves in? Did they somehow unlock the mysteries of the universe and find a way around the curse of sin, put an end to death, take on immorality, uh, immortality themselves? And that got lead God to say, nah, no, 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 okay, they're progressing too far here. I got to put a stop to this. 
Or maybe God was afraid that they're just becoming too much like him. That promise that the serpent gave them, I'm starting to see that take place. They're becoming a lot like him. Maybe, maybe he made them a little too much like his own image. You know, we're not given a ton of information here. All we have are six chapters Six chapters. Really, we just have four chapters if we're going to look at the fall, the period of time from the fall to the, to the flood. Our window into this antediluvian period, it's, it's pretty small. And yet, the little that we do know is very, very important. It shows the degeneration of the human race to a state of depravity that is so severe that it triggers the unleashing of God's wrath, of his anger, his fury, the likes of which the world had never seen before or has seen since. In the short time we have this morning, we're going to, in a sense, we're going to strap on our hard hats and we're going to click on those headlamps. And we're going to descend the mine shaft of human rot toward its despicable core. But as we do, I think fair warning needs to be given. Lest we be quick to, to point those fingers and stare in derision at those reprehensible deeds of others, we need to remember that not only do the same hearts of darkness beat inside of ourselves, but I think we also need to consider that the times that we find ourselves in may not be all that different from those dark, antediluvian, the pre-flood days of old. So let's look together at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And if you haven't turned there already, Genesis 6, 1 through 8, would you stand with me as we read from God's word this morning? Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. 
there are two big questions that we need to answer here this morning. The most significant we've actually already alluded to, and that is, why is this passage here? How does it help us understand God's response this severe response that God has. We want to know why God inspired Moses to write verses 1 through 8 right here before what happens next and after what we've seen previously. How does this passage help us understand the mind of God and the reason behind this great deluge of judgment that he's going to send out? But to answer that question, we've got to answer another question, and that is, what does this passage mean? And maybe you're like me, where you've come across this in your reading, and it is just, it has filled your mind with all kinds of thoughts, and you've gone all sorts of different directions, some directions that you wish it didn't lead you to go. What does it mean? What is the reality being described here? And let me just state it very plainly from the very beginning. That's no easy task. That is no easy task. Scholars who are far more educated than me, far more intelligent, they've labored for centuries to explain the meaning of these verses. I've spent the last two weeks reading looking at different interpretations, studying the text, trying to figure out what is going on here. And what I found, which was actually somewhat surprising to me, is that one interpretation, one that's actually been held for the longest time, from the earliest of days, held by Jewish scholars, by Christian scholars, held by church fathers, by the way, the view that I never really liked, I always wanted to try to find a way around this view, that seems to be the best one supported by Scripture. And there's room here this morning to disagree on some of, some of these points, but one thing that we're going to find is certainly true. The state of humanity and the trajectory that it was heading is dark. It's headed to darkness. I don't have a great deal of time this morning to go into a lot of detail, but my hope is just to give us a flavor of some of the evidence and draw some broader conclusions which bear weight on our lives. So let's get into it. Look at verse 1 again. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives, any they chose. First of all, notice that humanity is growing. God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That was happening. That's going on. Not all was lost in the curse. People still enjoyed some of the inherent good things that came with being human, that came with being made in the image of God, that came with experiencing the blessing of life that he had given them. Men and women are marrying. They're having families. They're enjoying food that brought nourishment and sustenance to their bodies. They did all those normal things that human beings do because they're human. And though not much has been mentioned of them up to this point, not only did they have sons, but they had daughters. 
You don't very, really get very far as a species unless you have both sons and daughters, so it's good to see that they're here as well. But then in verse 2 we read, the sons of God, they saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took, they took as their wives any as they chose. At first glance, that sounds great. There's nothing too alarming about that. In fact, I suppose it'd be possible to just glance right over that and move on, except, except for the halting nature of judgment that we see in verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Something's not right here. Something's not right about the sons of God being attracted to the daughters of men. Something's not right about them getting married to them. What? This doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, and now he doesn't want them to do that? Is the problem that that the sons of men are seeing these women as attractive. Maybe, maybe lust was the issue here. Maybe God was upset that these beautiful female creatures that he made, they're being desired in the wrong way. Or could it be that the problem lied in the way that these women were being married off? I mean, were people not to choose for themselves who they were supposed to marry? Maybe arranged marriages was God's intention all the way along. And the silly business of marrying for love, <laughs> he did not like that. Could that be what it is? I don't think so. I don't think the offense was for either of those two reasons. We don't see any commands in Genesis 1 through 5 against being attracted to what God has made beautiful. In fact, we see the opposite. We see Adam rejoicing when Eve is brought into the picture. This is at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, he exclaims. He's excited, he's thrilled at the sight of her. And then the verse right after that makes it very clear that it's by God's design that men leave their parents and are joined to their wives. This is all part of God's plan. And nothing in here is said about uh, moms and dads deciding who you should marry. It's not in there. No, the offense must be something else. Something else is going on here. And I think that something is located in the distinction between sons of God and daughters of men. There's something that's going on in that definition of these two groups that incites the wrath, the holy anger of God. And so we've got to ask the question, who are these sons of God? Who are these daughters of man? Who are they? Well, some have said that the sons of God are those men who are described in chapter 5. 
that we looked at last week. The line of Seth, the descendants of Seth, the ones who seemed to be living lives that were more in line with the way God intended, the ones who seemed to be honoring God with their lives. At the end of chapter 4, we read, at that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then after that, in chapter 5, we read of people like Enoch, who walked with God. So maybe these good people were children of God, the ones who were God's people, the ones who were living in line with his, his law. Maybe that's what Genesis 6-2 is referring to. And maybe the daughters of man, maybe they're those shady women from the line of Cain, those ones over there the ones you shouldn't be messing with. Maybe the descendants of Seth, they weren't supposed to intermarry with those Canaanite women so they, so they would avoid being corrupted by their evil ways. Of course, the difficulty with that interpretation is that we don't see any prohibition here in those chapters. It doesn't say anything about line of Seth, you're not to mix with the line of Cain. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. And not only that, we read in verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. That's a pretty far-reaching blanket statement, isn't it? Sons of God, it can't refer to any righteous family line because there is no such thing as a righteous fat family line that's designated. And so the contrary, verse 5 makes it plain that after Enoch was somehow miraculously plucked from the planet's surface, the only righteous man alive, along with his immediate family, Noah. So that doesn't work. Another theory is that the sons of God, that's actually a reference to royalty. There have been plenty of examples throughout history of, of royal figures, kings, queens, rulers, who identified with divinity, even considered manifestations of the divinity, the divine themselves. And we see that in Egyptian pharaohs, Caesar Augustus, he was known as son of the divine one. And Sumerian king Gilgamesh, who lived sometime between 2800 and 2500 BC, was worshipped as a god. So maybe these sons of God is referring to these rulers. Maybe the problem was that these rulers were going around and seeing all these women out there and just grabbing them up to have their way with, do whatever they pleased with them. Maybe God didn't like the idea of kings having harems. And that's what was so upsetting to God. Uh, but you see, well, it seems to be clear that polygamy was never a part of God's design for human marriage, it doesn't quite add up. It doesn't quite add up that this practice by the elites of the day, why would that merit such a drastic, holistic punishment, judgment from God? I mean, why doesn't God just take down these evil rulers 
and leave the other people to do whatever it is that they're doing. Furthermore, it's extremely unlikely that either of these two theories, either the line of Seth theory or the ruler's theory, it's extremely unlikely, extremely uh, unplausible because the phrase of God, uh, sons of God, that phrase in the Old Testament, its usage, if you track it throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it never refers to human men. It always refers to angels. In the book of Job, we see that. By the way, it's likely that Job is the oldest book in the Bible. So the language that we see in Job, it's very likely that similar language was used in the Genesis period. In Job 1.6, we read, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Similarly, chapter 2, verse 1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, there's no doubt in the book of Job who those sons of God were. It refers to the company of fallen angels who hung out with Satan. Satan's the ringleader. He himself is a fallen angel. Now, near the end of Job, in chapter 38, we see that same phrase, sons of God, refer not to fallen angels, but it actually refers to those legitimate God-honoring angels. It says that they shouted for joy when God was laying the foundations of the earth. These angels were witnesses, and they were praised. Wow, you did that? Wow, this is amazing. God, you were incredible. We worship you sons of God. In the Psalms, we see a similar phrase, not quite sons of God, but sons of the mighty. And we see that in Psalm 29.1, and we see it in Psalm 89.6. Both of those instances referring to heavenly beings. In fact, that's the way the English Standard Version translates it, heavenly beings. And so sons of God in the Old Testament, it refers to those intelligent beings which were made directly by God. That is, they don't have spirit mothers and spirit fathers. Each one is the distinct, unique creation by the direct hand of God himself. They weren't designed for marriage. They weren't made to procreate and have angel babies. So all those pictures that you see of the things in diapers or sometimes without diapers, I don't see any precedent for that in scripture. Jesus made it clear here in Matthew twenty-two thirty and in Mark 12, 25, that the angels in heaven, they, they aren't given in marriage. They are who they are. There are as many of them as God has made, and that is it. So the distinction between sons of God and daughters of men here in Genesis 6-2, I believe, is the difference between angelic beings that have been made directly by God and human women who have come about through the God-designed method of procreation. God is the direct father of angels, and humans are the direct parents of their daughters. By the way, did you, did you see in the news this week? The world's smallest baby ever to have been born and live just went home 
This is incredible. Just after 23 weeks, 23 weeks of development in the womb, this this little girl came into the world 8.6 ounces. That's like a large apple. This This is phenomenal. After five months in the hospital, down, right here, down in San Diego, she just went home. Just went home, weighing 5.6 pounds. <laughs> That's tiny. So much for the idea of the unborn not being human, right? Amazing. Anyway, back to our passage. So if what we have here in verse 2 is angelic beings finding themselves attracted to, pursuing, and then marrying human women, then we have some other questions that beg answering. Well, one, do we really accept the reality of spirit beings, fallen or unfallen? Two, how can spirit beings marry material beings and then apart from the fact that God says so, what is, what is the real problem here? Why is this really not a good thing? Let's do our best to think through it in the time that we have together. Well, if we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, it's hard to get around believing in the reality of angelic beings, demonic or holy. They're, they're all over the Bible. We see them all over the place. We don't have a great deal of detail on them, and certainly I don't want to encourage you in the direction of the study of angelology to the point where it just becomes this all, you know, fascinating thing and it just consumes you. It's interesting. It's okay to study a little bit on it, but we don't want it to detract from our, our focus on Christ and the gospel, but it's there. God created them to serve him and honor him. We noted that in Job 38. They're there. They're present at the creation. They're praising him. And then at some point, there was a rebellion among the angels that resulted in a third of them falling, being cast out of heaven. We know that their ringleader is, was once known as Lucifer, now known as Satan. And together, they're bent on waging war against the glory of God. And one of the prime ways that they do this lies in their efforts to deceive and destroy people who have been made in God's image expressly for the glory of God. And we saw that in chapter 3 when Satan comes in the form of a certain serpent to tempt Eve. In the New Testament, we read demonic activity, it just ramps right up when Jesus comes on the scene. And there are various accounts in the book of Acts during the days of the early church of demonic activity. Then in Revelation, demonic forces are going to have a kind of a heyday. There's going to be kind of an unleashing at the end of the age before they come to their final demise, final and decisive demise as Christ cast them in to the lake of fire where they're going to be tormented forever. And so we may not see it. It may be out of sight, out of mind, but if what the Bible says is true, then the spirit world is very, very real. Now, how can these fallen spirits have any kind of relationship with human 
women, I think it's, the answer is very simple. They do it by indwelling human bodies. And that may sound fantastic. It may sound just completely far-fetched. You might be thinking, Jared, you're completely off your rocker, but I don't think so. Don't forget that Satan's first interaction with the human race was in the form of a living, breathing serpent. Don't forget that in Genesis 18 and 19, we read of how angels came in the form of men to visit Abraham. Don't forget in Genesis 32, Jacob, he wrestles with an angel. There was physical mass there. He's rolling around and tumbling, not just with thin air. This is, there's a body there. And the angel was actually able to wound him. Hebrews 13, it reminds us that some people have entertained angels, not even knowing it. Why? Because they came, at least appeared like human beings. And we know from the Gospels and the book of Acts that demons entered human bodies. I think that's exactly what we have here happening in Genesis 6. And we can debate that. That's okay. But I want to explore where that takes us and what it shows us about humanity. If that's what's happening, demons desiring to satisfy some lustful cravings, seeking to do damage to humanity, and maybe even thinking God might have a plan to save these people and we're going to corrupt that, they invade the bodies of human corrupt men. So what, what's so wrong with this? There's some New Testament passages that we can explore that shed some light, which was really just kind of mind-blowing to me. Take a look at 1 Peter 3.18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's what Christ did on the cross for us. That's what we hold so dearly, and that's what we'll celebrate in just a little bit as we come to the communion table. Being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit. So after Jesus died on the cross, he went somewhere, he did something. And we see that in verse 19. It said, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So after Jesus was crucified, he goes and visits these spirits in prison. Why were they in prison? They're in prison because they didn't obey God. Sometime before the flood, how did they disobey? Jude sheds, sheds light on this. They, didn't, they disobeyed because they crossed over clearly defined boundaries that God had set, somehow convinced human fathers to give their daughters away to them in marriage. Look at Jude. Jude's one chapter. We look at verses 6 and 7. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling... He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Next look at verse 7. Just, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, 
serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. These fallen angels, I think it's very clear, they left their proper dwelling. They went beyond the boundaries of God's natural order and sought to have relations with human women. And that is why God imprisoned them in gloomy darkness. Jude compares their sin to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what was the sin of those people? It was homosexuality. It was the indulging of sexual urges in a way that God never intended. We live in a world that's doing anything and everything to normalize what was never intended to be normal. And I think it's, there's a very clear warning here. It needs to be taken with the utmost seriousness. And just because you see it on TV programs that are designed to make you be entertained, or to make you laugh. We need to know that God isn't laughing. Fire from heaven raised the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to the ground. The gloomy darkness that these spirits were cast in, this wasn't any minimum security prison. In fact, the demons that had invaded the body of the man in Luke chapter 8, verse 31, they begged Jesus, do you remember? They begged him, command us not to depart into the abyss. This is the last place we want to go. We don't want to go there. We would much rather just send us, set us free to work our evil. Even if it's on those pigs in the hillside, we don't want to go to the place where those others were sent. Not a small thing to step outside the boundaries that God has established. Some have suggested that these demons, they came forcefully and they took advantage of these human women. But if you look at the language, it's the language that indicates a legal transaction, a legally binding marriage. Why would any human being, why would any human being want to marry a demon-possessed man? What would induce a a human father who has daughters to to give away his daughters in marriage to someone who, who, who claimed to be indwelt with this supernatural entity inside of them? I think for a very obvious reason. I think for the same reason that Adam and Eve wanted to eat of the fruit of that tree, the knowledge of good and evil. I think that there was a gleaming, beautiful piece of forbidden fruit that was dangled out in front of them. In Genesis 3, the serpent tempts Eve by convincing her, eating the fruit, this is going to... to give you a greater blessing, this is going to lead you to a new level of human existence than God has ever offered you. It's going to be far better than the things God wants you to have. By this time in Genesis 6, humanity had been feeling the full force of the curse of their sin, the consequences of their sin. Life was hard. Child, childbirth was painful. 
Work was frustrating and difficult. And on top of that, they kept saying over and over and over again, people that they loved, people that they cared for, they're getting old. They're getting sick. Their bodies are breaking down. And they're losing them. It was a vicious cycle. A cycle that I believe they were desperate to, to break. The same thing's going on in our world today. We're desperate to break the cycle. We're looking at every option we possibly can to remedy, to, to soothe the effects of the, of the sin, the, the consequences of our sin that we're experiencing in our world today. We're looking at every option except for turning to God. I think this was a cursed people seeking to beat death and remedy the effects of the curse apart from God. We want to fix this, but we'll fix this. We want to fix this, but we're not turning back to Him. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we, we read of the destruction of false teachers. There's a warning given for those who teach a false gospel. Those who deceive people into thinking that there are other ways of being saved and leading them again, away from Christ. And then interestingly enough, in verse 4, we read this. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Verse 6. If by turning the cities of, again, Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot... Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, in parentheses, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If all of that, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. We should take great encouragement from that. And he also knows to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And so to demonstrate the punishment of false teachers and guaranteed punishment from God. Peter uses the punishment of the fallen angels in the days of Noah as an example. God didn't spare these angels for their disobedience, for their deception. He didn't spare the wicked who died in the flood. He didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. So don't expect that you're going to get away with it, false teachers. Don't expect you're going to get away with it. What was the deception that these demonic beings were, were selling to these people? I think it was simply this. Marry us. Marry us and break the cycle of the curse. Give us your daughters and we'll breed you 
a superhuman race. Come to us and you'll be better off than you are now. You can even become greater than God ever intended you to be. You can break the cycle of death. You can become like God. Genesis 6-4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now the term Nephilim, it, it doesn't identify a certain race of people. And one of the reasons we know that is because God wiped everyone off the face of the planet and then we have the Nephilim at least being referred to again in Numbers 13. So it's not a race. It, it just means great men. Sometimes it's translated giants. That's the way it's translated in Numbers 13. When those Israelite spies, they go and they spy out the land, they come back and they say, the Nephilim are there in the promised land. It strikes terror into the hearts of everyone. Some translations, yeah, some translations say they're giants. It seems like it was just a term that was used to designate really strong, possibly large, powerful men. Kind of like the, the Dwayne Johnsons of the world, or, or the Joe Galvins of, of the world. <laughs> the Nephilim, big, strong, mighty men. And here in Genesis 6-4, the language, it seems to indicate that while the sons of God were implementing this scheme of theirs, these mighty men, they, they, were, they were on the planet. Now, now, how does this all work? I'm not exactly sure. Maybe these were men that uh, these demons, maybe the demons intentionally went after these men. Because if we can look like, you know, this big hulking man, then we can, you know, convince everyone that, yeah, you want to be like us. Or maybe it was the result of, of the unions that they had with, with these human women. Or maybe the, the sons of God, maybe they were just pointing and saying, hey, look, you see those Nephilim out there? You see, the, there's some mighty men among you, and you're just this, this you know, small little, little person, little nothing of a person, weak, feeble. You want to be like them? You want to be better than them? Then you give your daughters to us. I'm not exactly sure. In any case, no matter how impressive these Nephilim were, the texts make it clear the Nephilim, they were just men. In verse 3, God declares that man is still just human. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. He's just flesh. Nothing superhuman about him. Just like eating the forbidden fruit, that didn't make Adam and Eve more godlike. Joining up with these sons of God, it didn't produce a superhuman race. Humanity is just flesh and blood. The deception that was played out by these demons, it was simply that. It was just a deception. And isn't that the way Satan always works? I like the way one pastor put it. Satan promises heaven, but he delivers hell. That's exactly it, isn't it? Satan promises a new, innovative way to escape the effects of God's judgment, to eliminate death, to gain immortality, to take control, to have it all, to minimize pain, suffering, sadness, to maximize joy and pleasure and satisfaction, all apart from God. You can have it all apart from God. Just bow down to me. I'll give you all this. Just bow down to me. 
And because of the darkness of human hearts, we buy this time and time again. We plunge deeper and deeper into darkness in hopes that we will find salvation, but all we're met with is death. And so read those tarot cards, look into this crystal, recite these words, pray this specific prayer in just the right way. Imagine this into reality. It's, a, it's kind of a secret. Have enough faith, give enough money, and you're bound to find what you're looking for. You're bound to find it. Bow to this, this stone. Breathe in this, this smoke, take this drug, make the right sacrifice, and watch the results materialize. Get this education, adopt this diet, invest in these stocks, follow this exercise routine, and live your best life. How about this? Buy this, have that procedure, follow these celebrities, watch these programs and tell me you're not more fulfilled. Don't listen to what anyone else tells you. Follow the dream that's in your heart. How about this? Just you be you. Seek sexual fulfillment in anyone and in anything that you like. The de demonic promises, they go on and on and on. The hell-bent lies, they continue to this day. Deeper into darkness. That's where we see humanity going in these first few chapters of Genesis, deeper, deeper, willfully engaging with the very forces of evil, trying desperately to escape the curse and achieve greatness apart from God. And response says, God says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The declaration, I believe that dec declaration is not only a pronouncement of judgment, but it's also a sign of God's grace. Some say that the 120 years, that that refers to how long individuals will live after this period of time. But as we look at scripture, we see people living longer than that. I think that this is the number of years that God gives humanity to turn back to him before his judgment comes. Just like God sending Jonah to Nineveh saying, you warn these people, tell them turn back to me and I will turn from my wrath. I think this is God giving them grace. Verse five says, then the Lord, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. The depth of human depravity, their blatant rejection of any restoration of their relationship with God, it grieved God to his heart. And ultimately, it would bring about the cataclysmic, horrific event and destruction of all living things. All, except, all except for the eight people that God had set apart so that his great and marvelous plan would go forth. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And just like God had a plan to save Noah and his family from this terrible, horrific judgment that was coming, 
In so much greater way did God make a way for us to be rescued from his judgment through Jesus Christ. With those